Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we have been doing the China Africa project now going on six years, actually probably going on seven next year. So uh, it's done well, I would say. It's a much bigger success than you or I ever predicted when we started doing this podcast uh, all those years ago, you know, we do between fifteen and 30,000 downloads of the podcast. We have a quarter of a million people on Facebook. But in some ways, the China Africa Project has hit a plateau. And it's gone as far, I think, as it can go in the current format uh, in one sense. And so that kind of then sparked some ideas for you and I to mix things up a little bit. Yes, we wanted to reach people who we wouldn't reach normally. And the people who we reach normally are the wonks that listen to this podcast. <laughs> a lot of no offense, are, we say that in a very admiring yeah, way, we, by the way. So if you a, happen to be a wonk listening to this, there we go. From one wonk to another wonk. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's you know kind of a lot of academics, a lot of NGO people, a lot of uh, people who work in, in diplomacy and and big business and so on. Um, and we are you know we, that's not going to change. We keep we we you know the the you guys are our core audience and we reach out to you. But we wanted to expand it also to people who are more casual observers of the China Africa of, of China Africa issues generally. I think what was interesting is that over the past five or six years. The China-Africa story in many ways has gone mainstream. And I mean by mainstream is that it's no longer the domain of the Financial Times or The Guardian, but it's now on the, the Daily Nation in Kenya. It's on Pulse in Ghana and Nigeria. These are, these are big, big news portals that the everyday person receives. What I find so interesting, though, is that a lot of the work that academics do uh, you know, the, the likes of Deborah Braudigam, of Chris Alden, people at SAYA in South Africa, at the London School of Economics, does not seem to be crossing into this mainstream coverage. We still see a lot of the old stereotypes of prison labor, of, uh, you know, the Chinese exporting prison labor to Africa. Now, this past week, we've heard about the Chinese sending uh, human flesh to Zambia, Chinese imperialism, neocolonialism. So now, as this new wave of media is taking hold, uh, a lot of the old stereotypes are still very much entrenched. And that was where kind of we came in and said, we're not crossing over either. So what we've done is we've come up with this idea called uh, Q&A China Africa. Pretty simple, not a very sexy title. But what the idea is, is that every week uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our email, we get quite a bit of email from people and from students and from what I would call just kind of normal, ordinary people who don't follow this story for their, as part of their work. And they ask us the questions that they're afraid of asking publicly. So that's why they send it to us privately. And so they'll ask us why about, you know, the Chinese are racist or Chinese people will ask us about, you know, why are Africans so lazy? And they'll, they wouldn't want to publish this on Facebook, but it got us thinking that there might be an opportunity here. Yes, so we started this project to to answer your deepest, darkest China Africa questions. The things that, that the 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 unpc questions, the the ones where that you wouldn't want to ask at, at some academic conference, but the ones that you that that bother you anyway. So anything about China Africa relations that just doesn't seem to make sense, or something where you, that you did, that you've never seen addressed, that is that is the the space that we want to try and fill. And this was inspired in many ways 
by the Ask a Mexican column in the Orange County Register. Oh, no, I th- it's, an or- I, not, it's not the Orange County Register, but it's another Orange County newspaper in Southern California. And it's just a fascinating, fantastic column where people, again, would ask the questions that they were too afraid to ask anybody else. And uh, this wonderful columnist, he answers them, but he answers them in a very textured and thoughtful, nuanced way, but also a way that's accessible and actionable. So what we're going to do on today's show is we're going to give you a sample of the kinds of questions that we get and some of the answers that we give and to kind of, you know, show you how we are trying to raise the dialogue and increase the, the engagement with the China-Africa story to a whole new audience of mainstream consumers and of news consumers. So, uh, Kobus, let us start with you. I'm going to first go back to April 24th when you got a, an email from Mike in Nairobi. And let me read the question and then you can go ahead and answer it. The title is, Is China colonizing Africa. Okay. Dear Eric and Kobus, I read the other day that there are now more than a million Chinese people in Africa. A million? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Seriously? I know you guys say the Chinese aren't colonizing Africa like the way the British and the French did, but it's really starting to feel that way. Mike from Nairobi. Kobus, take it. So in the first place, I can see why it feels that way. You know, kind of African economies are small and weak. um, And compared to them, China is massive. Um, And so the negotiation relationship is very uneven. And at the same time, China is, is occupying this position of providing a lot of infrastructure while also exporting a lot of raw materials and selling back a lot of manufactured goods. So admittedly, that does it does resemble the pattern that that Europe set up. I don't think it's the same for two big reasons. In the first place, all of the bad stuff that China does in Africa, and they do some bad stuff in Africa, none of that compares to the stuff that Europe did. I mean, Europe was, the stuff that Europe did in Africa was was 500 years of some of the worst things that ever happened on Earth. Um, Nothing that China does, has done so far, compares in any kind of way to to what Europe did. And to to say, to call it neocolonialism lets Europe off the hook. Um, You know, kind of it it allows us to just forget about what Europe did. And and you'll find so frequently that the people who who are really banging that drum, that that China is a neocolonialist power drum, are Europeans. You know, kind of because it just it just it's a way of of changing the conversation from what Europe did, and that conversation, to my mind, should never be changed. Um, in the second place, um, it, it lets African leaders off the hook. So it, it you know kind of it, it allows African leaders to be all oh poor little us we you know kind of we just have all of this stuff done to us. Well, in reality, a lot of research has shown that African leaders have a lot of decision-making power. Not by any means complete decision-making power, but still a lot more than they ever had under under colonialism. And so their lack of governance and the decisions they make need to be need to be interrogated by their own people. And the neo the calling it neocolonialism lets them off the hook and, and stops that process from going on. And doesn't it really show in some ways how many Africans kind of view their their engagement with the outside world through the experience of their own history, which was a brutal, violent uh, unfair, unequal engagement with the West. And so whenever there's a new kind of presence that comes in, even though it's not carrying the baggage of, you know, European colonialism, it, it, the framework is still put that way through. The, you know, they still look at it that way. And so I think you mentioned the West, you mentioned African leaders, but I also think this is something that's common among African people 
as well. I mean, like Mike, who is kind of, you know, thinking that this is colonialism. Yeah, and you you do get this theme that the only thing that Africans can ever be are colonials, or people. But I mean, what I mean is, you know, people who have been colonized. Um, that that is the only role for Africa in the world. Um, and you know, kind of when when Africans think that it's so horrible, you know, kind of. So I think it, you know, kind of it, it needs to that needs to be changed fundamentally. I completely agree. And one other key point that I like to bring up in conversations about this, and this is the kind of tone that we're taking in our responses right here is that a lot of the Chinese migrants who have moved to, to, to Africa, the million people, and of course, we don't actually know how many Chinese are there. Some people say 600,000. Some people say as high as 2 million. So people kind of use a million as a talking point. But a lot of them are there for economic reasons. And I always like to remind my African friends, um, you know, particularly, you know, because I come from the United States, when you go to New York, um, huge African communities. Now Europe is being overwhelmed in many, in many cases. I mean, you look at Sweden, uh, in Germany, uh, many of those migrants are from North Africa as well. And so people are moving for economic reasons, and that doesn't mean they're necessarily colonizing. And so I think this word colonizing, when in fact it's really other things, it's part of migratory patterns, people are moving for lots of different reasons, but they're not colonizing. And I think that's a very important distinction. So I say, is the Nigerian in Brooklyn colonizing New York? And of course people say, well, no, he's there for a better life. Well, that's the same as the guy from Hunan province who's moved to Kinshasa. He's there to make some money and to find a better life for him and his family. That doesn't make him part of some colonial agenda. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And speaking of that, of that theme, um, you got a, a mail from um, Adewale in Guangzhou about this particular issue about life as a, as an African in China. Um, and he says, "Hey guys, why are the, why are Chinese people so racist towards black people?" I mean, really, I'm from Nigeria and I've lived in Guangzhou for six months already. And I can tell you that a lot of people here really don't like black people. What bleeps me off so much is that there are so many more Chinese people who live in my country. And yet they don't get hassled anywhere near as much as we do in China. Why? Yeah. Take it away. He's absolutely right. Adewali, thank you so much for that email. And, and, you know, because people have heard on the show that I have a background uh, in Chinese, I've, I actually get quite a few emails from Chinese uh, folks, and so we're going to get to those later on. But let's talk about Adewali's point, because this is actually one of the most complex, the most interesting, and in some ways the most perplexing issues is the race relations between the two. Because again, as we talked about with the colonialism issue, a lot of Africans and whites kind of put things through their own prism. The Chinese look at race in a very, very different way. And this is so the ignorance that people kind of project through some of their comments doesn't come from the same place that the ignorance that people project, say, in the United States or in Europe, where there are very long, complicated racial histories and interactions specifically with black people. We had this great discussion, Kobus, with uh, Nicole Bana on an earlier podcast about the complexities of being black in China. And one of the things she pointed out was that people are just ignorant, but not hateful. And that's a very kind of key distinction. And so yet, it, if you're the receiving end of that, well, you know, that's not a whole lot of fun. So I understand where Adewale is coming from. So number one, let's talk about racism. Um, what I found in my own experience living in China for over 10 years was people are not used to living in a multicultural society. This is a society where 93 to 94% of the population is Han 
Chinese, that ethnicity, where people have effectively the same color eyes, the same color skin, the same color hair. Um, and so the Chinese, when they have to deal with foreigners, typically kind of put that through the perspective of, well, white equals foreigner. That, by the way, is very similar to other parts of the world. So then other people kind of come into the mix, Latinos, African-Americans, black Africans, Middle Easterners, and this kind of throws that very simple racial framework upside down. The second thing is that a lot of people have formed their opinions based on mass media. And this is something that I used in my response to Adewale that I found many years ago talking to one of my interns in Hong Kong who said that she would actually cross the street when she saw a black person. And I said, well, you cross the street? I mean, you were literally in fear that's, that this person was going to hurt you. Have you ever met a black person? She said, no. Have you ever talked to a black person? She said, no. And so I just couldn't get in my mind what would actually project this much fear that she was, again, she was afraid of bodily harm if she was on the same side of the street. I said, so where do you get this fear from? She said, well, I watch the movies, and in the movies, the black people are always killing, they're always violent, so I don't want to take a chance. And in some ways, that's a very logical, rational kind of point of view. I can tell you right now that growing up in the United States, the, the views that people have of the Chinese are maybe not quite so violent, but equally as ignorant. Um, the stereotypes and architecture and caricatures that we have today of Asians in the United States on mass media are simple, are very, very stereotypical. Uh, now it's either that they are the villainous kind of North Korean dictator or they are the you know, nerd or the busboy. I mean, the range of characters in mass media of Asians and Chinese in particular is so narrow that people have incredibly ignorant you know, worldviews on this. So in many ways, it's yeah, not I mean, that, that different. Is, that is even more true in Africa because, you know, kind of like as any East Asian who's walked around in Africa tells you, like every, every second person you meet, they meet, ask them to do Kung Fu. You know, kind of, so you still, you still have a lot of like people just having the ideas of East Asia is essentially Bruce Lee, That's you know, right. kind of, which is crazy. And, and, and so I don't want to put it all on mass media because that too is very simple. I don't want to put it all on a monocultural uh, type of worldview. The last part of this is something that Martin Jack, he kind of spoke of very eloquently. He's an author who wrote a book, a very well-known book called When China Rules the World. And he talks about the cultural supremacy that the Chinese feel. The characters Zhongguo mean kind of middle kingdom. And deep into Chinese history, there's this idea that, you know, China is the center of the world and the barbarians are on the outside. In many ways, all foreigners, white, black, everybody was a barbarian. And although people don't necessarily articulate that in their everyday kind of conversation, that cultural supremacy does come out. And listen, I'm an American. Um, we think we are better than most people. We think that we are the best country in the world, that God blesses us. You know, you hear the American president always say, may God bless America. You know, so this cultural supremacy is not something the, the exclusive domain of the Chinese. It's something that the French also have to some degree, but certainly Americans have. Uh, but that kind of manifests itself into a cultural supremacy as well. The Chinese will always tell you that we are the longest continuous civilization on the planet. We have more than 5,000 years of culture and history, uninterrupted. That's historically debatable, but the point is that's what a lot of people believe. And so deep within this kind of issue of race and culture towards black people and others, 
um, is this idea of of cultural supremacy, the Middle Kingdom, and the idea that anybody who's not Han Chinese is a barbarian. And again, people don't articulate that, but it's something that's deep inside and kind of sugarcoats the comments and the attitudes. One very final quick point here, and this is again going back to the show we had with Nicole Bana and, uh, and also the Tiffany, uh, Tiffany Johnson, who was an, is a teacher, an African-American teacher in Beijing. And what she found was once she got past this initial kind of awkwardness that people had, then all of the kind of negativity went away. And so I think it's very, very thin, these kind of hostility that people may have towards others. Um, and that's where, again, it's different than, say, racism in the United States or race, race issues in South Africa or in the UK. One very kind of quick point, which I fully agree with Adewala, is the BS attitude that the Chinese authorities have towards African immigrants in places like Guangzhou, where you know, and I know, Kobus, that you know, Chinese illegal immigrants are populating South Africa, in Nigeria, in Ghana, the illegal gold miners there, and the reciprocity is just brutal. Um, Chinese Im- African immigrants in Guangzhou and China now live under very difficult circumstances, and it is not fair and it is not equal. And uh, it's something that I would hope would come up in diplomatic discussions between countries like Nigeria and China to ease off uh, their immigrants a little bit to make it easier for people to migrate and to settle, just as these African countries have made it for Chinese migrants. And so, you know, just just one additional point. I was wondering, to which extent do you think some of this, you know, kind of racism and othering of of um, you know of, of African immigrants, to which extent is that also a kind of a, a, a moment in history where China feels completely triumphant because of this kind of thirty years of massive development, where they feel that not only are they this kind of five thousand years of continuous civilization, these five thousand years of I've now like taken them to essentially the, the the position of the new world leader. You know, kind of to say that, is, uh, that there's that they have this kind of illusion, similar to what Japan had in the late eighties, of that history is proving them right. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of and that everyone else is there to learn. What's interesting about the Chinese, and again, we're 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 talking about a billion people here in a culture that is very complex. So when I say the Chinese, it is it is hard to generalize. But that said. Uh, one of the interesting things about it is this kind of schizophrenic outlook that a lot of Chinese have, which is on the one hand, uh, particularly young Chinese, millennials, will talk very, very confidently and say, this is the Chinese century. We are now in control. And they will really embody that kind of Xi Jinping view of the world. You know, America, you cannot boss us around anymore. We have the world's second largest economy, the world's second largest navy, the number one market in 15 of these key products from cars to computers to telephones and whatnot. So therefore, China has arrived, just very much what you're alluding to. And then just right around the corner from that confidence is this chip-on-the-shoulder victimization that China's always being attacked by the West, China's being contained by America, China's the victim of colonialism, and it's this kind of insecurity that the government has spent decades kind of cultivating and used very aggressively against the Japanese, against the Americans, to some extent against the Soviets in the Cold War, that China, much like Africa, is the victim of everybody else's agendas. And so you feel these two kind of competing pressures. And then the other part about it is that when you go to China itself, you know, Susan Shirk, who's a former American diplomat, wrote this very, very important book called China, the Fragile Superpower. 
And what's interesting is that the reaction in the United States was, China's fragile? And the reaction in China was, we're a superpower? You know, because when you live in China and you see one scandal after another, you know, we've just had another one with vaccines. There was powdered milk where babies are getting killed. The corruption up in Tianjin, there was an explosion of a chemical kind of storage facility last year that killed, you know, hundreds of people. And you think to yourself, why would they have a chemical storage facility right in the middle of a populated area? Well, because of corruption and because of incompetence and because of a system that doesn't serve the people. And so there's this real deep embedded frustration and hostility that Chinese have towards their own system of government. And they think to themselves, how, you know, how can we become a superpower if we can't even feed babies? If we have to have mothers importing powdered milk from Hong Kong and Singapore, you know, what kind of superpower is that where our infrastructure is crap and falling apart? Schools are not strong enough to withstand, you know, even minor earthquakes. So again, you have these competing pressures that live within the Chinese mindset. And it's not a simple narrative. We on the outside oftentimes like to assign our own narrative on the Chinese, you know, this is the Chinese century, it's going to take over the world, they're going to challenge the Americans. And the Chinese go, eh, yeah, not so much. You know, it's a very complicated kind of worldview. Again, this is why I think this issue of race and culture all intersect with one another in a lot of contradictions uh, in China. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that answered his question. Um, So, Adewale, if that did, please let us know. Uh, It's probably a little bit off tangent there, but nonetheless, let's move on now. Okay. Kobus, this is an email that we've gotten several times, and it's one that kind of comes up in our conversations quite a bit with people. Particularly, I find that it comes up with whites a lot. But in particular, this one came from, uh, you're going to have to help me with the name, Chepiso. Chepiso. Okay. So Chepiso. Yeah. yeah. uh, And I learned something new with this email that apparently Josie, uh, is it Josie is how you say it? Yes. Josie is short for Johannesburg. So, uh, yes. hi, Eric and Kobus. I live in Josie, South Africa, where the Chinese live like prisoners. There's that word. Uh, the Chinese live like prisoners. They only keep to themselves, mostly keeping in Chinatown. They don't even learn English or South African languages, and they don't want to mix with Africans. They remind me of the white people in South Africa who also hide behind high walls. Are the Chinese just copying the whites? And is this a thing in other African countries, too, from Chapiso via email. Thank you so much, Chapiso. Kobus, why do Chinese yes. people in South Africa live only among themselves? Or do they? Well, Chapiso is right in the sense that Chinese people do tend to kind of withdraw into into these enclaves. Um, Johannesburg has, has several Chinatowns, um, and you know, kind of a lot of a lot of, especially the new Chinese community, tend, they they tend to kind of gather there. But they do it for real reasons. In the first place, um, Johannesburg can be a crazy place to live. Um, so you know, kind of the city does have a bad reputation, and some of it is for real reasons. So Chinese people are not the only ones, you know, kind of who have high walls. So generally in, in Johannesburg, once you can afford a wall, you tend to buy a wall. You know, you, that's, that tends to be how it works. Um, so, you know, kind of most middle class people tend to tend to have a lot of security. Um, so at the same time, uh, you know, kind of Johannesburg is actually quite, can be a very nice place to live. Um, 
And some of this the reputation is really actually unfair, but it is still the reputation. So a lot of these Chinese people arrive in Johannesburg thinking they are now they've now moved to a war zone. Um, while in reality, you know, if you, you can have a very nice, relaxed life in Johannesburg if you take certain precautions. Um, and so they tend to they tend to kind of just hide, you know, kind of they they um, and. Some of the some of this tendency to to hide themselves away come from I think, quite realistic fears that they are going to be targeted for being Chinese, and a lot of people have done research about this, and they've a lot of academics have confirmed this that the Chinese people in South Africa sometimes tend to be shaken down by the police a lot, and they sometimes get come in for for more crime than other minorities because of perceptions that they don't use the banking system, and so that they if they have a business they tend to keep a lot of cash. Under their mattresses, essentially, um, you know, kind of like some of this has some some truth to it. Um, there, there has been complicated um, relations between the banking sector and the tax sector in South Africa and the, China, the Chinese community. A lot of that is being is changing quite rapidly. Um, but yeah, so so there's a, a lot of Chinese people do feel that they kind of have a target on their backs. Okay, and the, and they also feel that they stand out. Let me let me challenge you a little bit. Okay, Um, because I think this is an unfair question to ask of the Chinese people, because uh, I've lived in Los Angeles. I live in Ho Chi Minh City now. I've lived in Paris. I've lived in London, uh, lots of major international cities. And what I have found in all of those cities is that first generation immigrants tend to live among their own. And the reason is simple, because you don't know the culture. You don't know the people. You don't know the language. And what annoys me more than anything is when whites in particular hurl this accusation. And I used to love it living in Paris, where white people, Americans in particular, would say, you know, ah, these Chinese, they only go to Chinese restaurants when they come to Paris and they don't enjoy French food. And yet they're like saying, where's the closest Starbucks in McDonald's? And you're just like, oh my God, you know, here I am in Ho Chi Minh City and I know the whites aren't assimilating and integrating. We live in a separate world, isolated from the broader society. Why? Because, well, we're foreigners, we're first-generation immigrants, a lot of us are living here and never leaving, I mean, so we're definitely an immigrant, not an expat, but the second generation, they learn the language, they learn to assimilate to the culture, they move out of the ghettos, and this is the same pattern that Africans do all over the world, that Chinese do all over the world, that all people do all over the world, and so when, you know, I'm disappointed in some ways that this came, this email came from you know, Chipiso, who sounds like he's a local, you know, local from Johannesburg, because when whites in Africa kind of throw that question, and they live behind their walls, and they live in their ghettos, and they live in their community, and they go to their high-priced supermarkets, and they're not learning local languages, um, I get really, really annoyed by saying, well, the Chinese should have this expectation. And yet, and what's interesting is that it's not universal across the continent either. One of the things that Chinese do that's very interesting in other parts of the world, but particularly I saw in Kinshasa, and I also see in Los Angeles and in San Francisco, where I'm familiar with, is the Chinese are very entrepreneurial. So they will go into the townships outside of Kinshasa and start a business because there really is nowhere to start a Chinatown in a city like Kinshasa because every square inch of available space is already spoken for. So people go wherever there's an opportunity. In Oakland or in Los Angeles, people from China will go into the poorest neighborhoods to open a dry cleaner or a a laundromat or a kind of 24-hour convenience store because the property is cheap. 
and there's an opportunity. And that, to me, in many ways, is the ultimate assimilation, getting out far beyond your cultural comfort zone. And in many ways, the Chinese as business people uh, all over the world are actually much more effective at that than a lot of other cultures. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think in, in the the situation is in, in Johannesburg is even more complicated than in a, in a place like like Los Angeles, because in Los Angeles you still have some kind of form of monoculture. I mean, it still is an American city with a strong American culture, even though you know it's it's a very like very large um, minority populations. But in South Africa, the very concept of a national culture is kind of up for grabs, and it's being re- negotiate at the moment and that is I think where some of Zippy's you know kind of question comes from there is a lot of um, you know South Africa right after apartheid had this this myth that came from essentially was taken from um, both the the words of um, Nelson Mandela and um, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu that South Africa is essentially a rainbow that it's a you know it was it, it came to be branding it, it branded itself as the rainbow nation um, you know kind of of different kind of minorities all coming to Together as a single entity, that whole story is under really strong questioning at the moment, and there's um, there's a very strong. Uh, you know, kind of like return to the idea that, okay, so sure, rainbow, whatever, but, you know, this is an 80% black country, Um, you know, kind of, and so this is the dominant culture in South Africa, and, you know, kind of like minorities need to renegotiate their position, you know, kind of in relation to this reality. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, South Africa is going through a a process at the moment of questioning the rainbow. Um, And there's a lot of very eloquent writing coming out of South Africa about like, you know, anti-rainbowism and what that that would mean and whether it's just the same as being, you know, kind of xenophobic or anti-minority or not, et cetera, et cetera. So so the question comes from that climate as well. And the Chinese, especially Chinese people who have recently arrived and who don't speak a lot of English and who don't f- find it difficult to follow a, a very like fast-moving and complicated and politically coded kind of conversation in South Africa, they tend to find themselves really wrong-footed in lots of ways in, 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 in South Africa. Even people who've been born here and have been here for generations find it difficult to sometimes understand what's going on. Interesting. Okay, let's move on to the last question. I think this one is for you to me. Yes, and this is the barn burner. This is um, the barn burner. <clears throat> it's uh, it's from Sunny in Lusaka. I worked for a Chinese company for six months in Lusaka, and it was not fun. My Chinese boss pushed us very hard and said we were lazy. My friends also said their bosses called them lazy too. We worked hard, but they still thought we were la- we were lazy. I heard, I heard it. I hear it all the time, and it really makes me angry. Why do Chinese have this mindset that they are the only ones who know how to work hard? Yeah, this is uh, this is one you know, and I have to say that I can speak from actual personal experience, and this goes beyond simply a uh, you know again a Chinese national identity. So there are there's the Chinese ethnic identity and a Chinese national identity. There's Zhongguo and there's Huaren. Huaren is the ethnic, so that encompasses Singapore. Uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, you know, the broader Chinese kind of world. And I used to work for a Taiwanese company. And in many ways, the the pride that, you know, employees would kind of show to the boss is how many hours they worked or, you know, they did a factory inspection at two in the morning on a Saturday morning and the boss would, oh, that's great, you know. And this idea was that if you were to impress your boss and to kind of work hard meant to kind of suffer a little bit. The harder you work, the more sacrifice you made. Uh, in many ways that showed your dedication, your devotion to the company. 
And so the Chinese oftentimes when they go overseas run into this cultural problem because we, Westerners, a lot of Africans, a lot of people around the world, we don't see the world the same way. We don't have to do what the Chinese call chiku, which is to eat bitter. Now, a lot of people don't understand, and particularly in Africa, there's this misunderstanding that Chinese are also like Westerners. They're whites, basically, uh, which is completely ridiculous, as you and I both know, because the Chinese come from a kind of historical context that is radically different than in the West. And up until the past 30 years ago, and still to this day for many people, uh, China has suffered brutal grinding poverty. I mean, poverty that is that makes a lot of what we see in Africa look rather mild, actually. Uh, and a lot of people kind of point out that China today still has more poor people than Africa does, and just by virtue of the size of China's population. So there's this idea of overcoming hardship, and the way you overcome hardship is through hard work, through personal sacrifice, and by pushing and driving. And so Chinese factories have been known to push, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. This, of course, happens in a country that doesn't have a, a rule of law, so they can get away with doing this. The Chinese to themselves are extremely brutal when it comes to pushing this. So this is not something that they're doing to others that they're not doing to themselves. And they also look at the West in many respects as indulgent. So part of the narrative of the rise of China and the kind of relative decline of the United States and Europe inside the Chinese kind of narrative is, well, they're lazy. They're not working very hard. They look at the European social system and they say, you get all of this given to you. You know, you don't have to earn it. You know, people who don't work very hard get all these benefits. That's a very common refrain that I hear in China quite a bit. And then with, the, with people who are poorer than them now, and this is the same in Vietnam as it is in Africa, they, they will, I hear this all the time from Taiwanese factory bosses and Hong Kong factory bosses and Chinese factory bosses. Oh, you have to push them very hard. You have to be very tough. They're lazy people if you don't push them very hard. And the irony of all that is that I remember back in the 80s and the 90s, when China was still very much a communist country in every sense of the word, that the Taiwanese would first go in to invest and foreigners would go in to invest. And what would they say about the Chinese? They said they're lazy. They won't do anything. <laughs> so it's just ironic to me that now here we are a generation later and Chinese managers are going to places like Africa and suggesting that you know, Africans are lazy when, in fact, people are confronted with huge obstacles in their daily lives. And also the Chinese have to learn how to manage people from different cultures. And this is what I also think is a big part of this and what I said to my answer into the, to the question, which was, you know, this is the first generation of Chinese managers that are working across languages, across cultures. You know, in the West, we've been doing this for quite some time. We've had a globalized business culture for, for, for a century, at least, if not. People like myself who have worked in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, so we're used to working with different people, different languages, different values. So there's a little bit of sensitivity. Well, the Chinese, this is really the first generation of managers that's gone outside of the country. And so I think there's a learning curve that's going to happen. And there's a new generation of young Chinese, and you and I, Kobus, have spoken to a lot of them who went to universities in the United States, in Europe, in Asia. They are now working in places like Africa. They speak a lot of different languages. They're much more keyed in with the culture. And I think they're going to be very, very different from their predecessors who today still 
kind of say, well, Africans are lazy. And this is very much a very common kind of refrain. But I want to tell everybody that it's not just an African thing. They think whites are lazy. They think here in Vietnam they're lazy. They think Africans, you know, you name it, the list. So the Chinese definitely have an issue that they have to overcome on their management style in overcoming this idea that just because you're not willing to commit 12 hours a day, do Sunday overtime, work through vacations, does not mean you are lazy. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I think there's a, there's a kind of a, a kind of a discourse of like work machoism, you know, kind of that that comes in, in, in several cultures. I mean, the US being a, a main one, well, you know, kind of that thing of like, Japan, we're never offline, we're always available. Same we're all, thing you know, in Japan, where, where people, there's a yeah. word, give me the word in Japan for for working to death. The only culture in the world uh, that has, There we go. Um, mm. I mean, and the Japanese have this machismo too, that I devote myself to the company in order to demonstrate to my superiors that I am worthy of their praise and of my position. Um, and, you know, we don't have that in other cultures and that Confucian yeah. kind of loyalty and to hierarchy. And I think also, you know, kind of what, what it hides as, you know, this, this kind of form of, of work macho is, is it hides all of, the, all of the kind of weird resentments and wasted time and so on that actually takes place within that system. So because frequently it's a, like how many hours did you put in system, not necessarily how much did you get done during That's those right. hours. That's right. And, and, you know, kind of it also it, it, it hides a lot of like weird social relations so for example in at my university in japan um it was a thing in the, in the engineering department where people were trained you know for similar situations at work that you were not supposed to leave before your professor left in the same way that you're not supposed to leave before your boss leaves so you know kind of you wait for your boss to leave and then you go home. You know, kind of. If you seem to leave before your boss, then that's a bad form. So, um, so the one professor in the engineering department got divorced, and he didn't want to go home because his home was so depressing. So he just stayed in the lab forever, and all of these students were just trapped there. And the kind of like all of these resentful kind of like you know kind of dis- discussions about how the the, the, the poor divorced, divorced professor stays in the lab until two, and they for that reason then have to stay until three. You know, so it is you know it, it hides a lot of wasted time and a lot of nonsense actually. All of this kind of work. No, I, I agree. Kind of and there's one other issue that I think is worthy of mentioning here is that you know much of the Chinese economic miracle of the past 25 years was built on the backs of rural Chinese migrant labor in southern China, who worked themselves extremely hard because for them, this was their way out of poverty. And Korean managers, Taiwanese managers, Japanese managers, mainland Chinese managers were willing to abuse and exploit these people uh, because they knew that they had no other alternative. Because going back to the countryside, to the poverty that awaited them, was simply not an option. And yet, at the same time, it built up enormous resentments within the Chinese working class and the blue-collar workforce. Um, and, and so, again, the dynamic that we see in Africa, the tension between management and workers, is also something that's on vivid display in China, where there were, over the past decade, there have been you know, thousands, I mean, thousands of protests, of strikes, of, of walkouts against the poor treatment that factory workers have had to endure in China. And in part, that has forced a change in the kind of policy level where you, you, they're having to pay more for, for labor. They're having to pay more for protection and CSR programs, forcing the cost of labor up. And that's why a lot of these factories are now moving to other countries, particularly places, you know, countries in Africa and here in Southeast Asia, because it got too expensive. Chinese workers said enough. 
so I hope that some of the Chinese management, and I doubt this is the case, but I hope, have learned some of the lessons of their kind of brutal tactics and their, their very simple caricatures and, and, and stereotypes of working people in China and don't bring that to Africa and don't bring it to Ethiopia, to South Africa, to Nigeria, where factories are starting to open. And because this attitude is so corrosive and destructive, and in the end, I think it will hurt the Chinese more than it will anybody else. So Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, this, gives you, this should give everybody a little taste of what our discussions are like offline. And so what we're doing now is we're taking these kind of very opinionated, kind of very casual kind of analysis and bringing it online. And so if you want to check out the full list of what we're doing, go to africa-china.info. It's our newest website from the China Africa Project. But really the website is not that important here because what we're trying to do is partner with uh, news portals in the United States and newspapers in Africa and you know websites in Europe. And now even we're going into China as well and bring this conversation there because it's really about us starting a conversation with you. And you'll see on my LinkedIn page, so if you look me up on LinkedIn, just look up Eric Olander, and you'll see on my Pulse feed on LinkedIn, 46, 47 comments, thousands of people engaging in this content. And it's working because this is what we wanted to do was take the conversation outside of the wonky academic circles and make the jump into social media and mainstream discussions that are happening about the Chinese in Africa. Because everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people are thinking about it, want to talk about it, want to have an open conversation, but don't want to get kind of bogged down in a Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies kind of seminar on it. And they want to kind of think we about this. We love you, Johns Hopkins. <laughs> That's right. So, we love SICE. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, it's a little bit wonky here. So um, our friends at SICE are going to be like, why are you guys picking on us? You know, which we're not really, but it's just, it's really the embodiment yeah, so of wonkiness. It's just the, the wonk space. It's yeah. the wonk space. So... Deborah, Janet, we, we, we really uh, value what you do. Um, but so this is a new thing. It's going to actually also be translated into Chinese. So we're hoping then now to take some of the comments in English or in French or in Arabic, put it into Chinese, and then bring it back from Chinese into those languages. So there's a really neat conversation that's starting here. If you would like to join the conversation, there's so many different ways you can do it. Number one, hit us up on Twitter. Kobus, where can they find you on Twitter? I am at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E, and I promise I will come back to you even if it's a bit late. Awesome. And so you can find me at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Just do a, a DM and you can ask you to submit your question that way. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We get about half of our messages that come through Facebook, so just send us a message through that page. Email. We've set up a separate email for this, questions at chinaafricaproject.com. That's questions at chinaafricaproject.com. So those are the easiest ways. There's lots of different ways to find us on the internet. Just look either one of us up and you can send us your question. We will. We get so many questions each week, maybe about 10 to 15 is what we're getting right now. So we're not able to answer all of them. But we're putting out one per week right now and publishing it. Uh, also, just so you know, we will not publish your full name. We will publish your uh, name. And if you want us to not even do that, we're okay with that because we understand these are some sensitive issues. So just let us know if it's okay to publish your first name. So that's our new project. We'd love to hear what you think. Please give us your feedback. Uh, China uh, or Africa-China.info. 
the China Africa Q&A. We'll be back again with very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.